Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest will be Dr. Brent Morris, who's on the faculty at USC Beaufort, and we'll be talking about the period in South Carolina from the end of the Revolution to the 1820s and the evolution of South Carolina from a strongly nationally oriented state to a state's rights position. This is part of a continuing conversation on South Carolina history sponsored at the university by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Institute for Southern Studies. The general topic for tonight is the unification of a slave state, bringing South Carolina uh, up to 1820. But as you know from our earlier conversations, we might wander a little bit here, there, and yon as, as the conversations go. This is not scripted, folks. This mm -hmm. is... Uh, a true conversation. We try to pretend that we're sitting here uh, on the dock at Edisto with a, an appropriate beverage. Um, <laughs> and after two, the conversation really flows beautifully. <laughs> so, Brent, I'd like to set the stage a little bit, going back to in the years after the revolution, because I don't think we've really covered it in the, the earlier conversations. And that is the tremendous antagonism between the low country and the rest of the state. Now, I know there's a debate as to where the low country ends. Uh, there's some people who say that it's south of Broad, um, <laughs> which was not true for people in 18th century South Carolina. Those folks south of Broad don't really know their history. Uh, but it did end at a place called Land's End, which is about 40 miles inland uh, in present-day Collington County, more or less. Then we had the middle country, and then we had had the back country. But in 1783, at the end of the revolution, peace, two-thirds of the voting population lives in the back country. A third lives in the low country. The General Assembly is apportioned directly opposite to that. Two-thirds of the seats in the House of Representatives belong to the low country. One-third to the back country. <laughs> Um, and one district got two Senate seats, Charleston. <laughs> Y'all act like you're surprised when I say <laughs> things like that. Um, there was continuing antagonism, particularly for representation by the backcountry, mm. as, as you know. So do you want to talk uh, about uh, how some of these backcountry folks might have felt, say, about <laughs> 1810? about those, those folks down there in Charleston? Well, about 1810, they felt like they could look at them as equals. <laughs> they, they thought that all the way back to, to before the revolution. Yeah, they thought it. Right. But, but, and of course, in 1810, we had gone through the compromise, so maybe I should mm -hmm. take you back to about 1800. That'll work. And we're, and we're, try, and we're trying to get representation. That's, mm -hmm. that's the big issue. And some low country folk are smart enough to realize we've got to bring the state together. And you will remember that we talk about the hush puppies that the General Assembly threw to the back country to quiet them. You know, just enough to, sat, you know, to shut them up, but not really give them a whole meal. And the institution where, that's sponsoring this series was one of the first hush puppies tossed that's right. to the back country. You want to? Okay. Um, 1801, South Carolina College was chartered. And that was a hush puppy, like you said. It was, it was an attempt by, by the low country elite to, to give something to the back country to, to keep them quiet for a little while to, to keep that argument down. And I'll get back to that. The, the reason that the back country wanted reapportionment constantly was just the reason that Walter said a minute ago, that the, uh, the representation was far out of proportion to the, the white population in the upcountry versus the low country. The low country had more of the slave property, they had more wealth, and representation was based on a strange alchemy of a combination of white population and wealth. Um, the upcountry had the white majority, but they just lacked the wealth at this point. And they constantly wanted that to be recognized. And there were, there were a lot of pushes for the, the, the formula to be fixed. And from time to time, like Walter said, these hush puppies were thrown out. Yeah. And actually, the college was the second one. The first one was moving the capital Columbia. That was 1786. Yeah. They sure. didn't really get here till 1790. <laughs> but can you imagine 
after having met in Charleston all those years to meet in Columbia. <laughs> now, the arguments, there were all sorts of not very nice arguments made. In fact, the way Columbia got its name, thank you, Senator John Lewis Gervais, <laughs> was that some Charlestonian made a snide comment about that it, the new town should be called Columbia because it was beyond the pale of the law. And John Lewis Gervais said he hoped that all oppressed people might find comfort under the wings of Columbia. <laughs> uh, but by the way, given that we are a legislative state, by one vote we were not called Washington. You know, we always complain about Washington. The rest of the state complains about Columbia. Had we not changed the name, we could just complain about Washington Square. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we would have been the first Washington. And it, would have been, it would have been the, yes. Who knows it, how things would have been. It would have been the, fir it would have been the first Washington before <laughs> there was um, Washington, D.C. But there, there was a sense that folks in the, in the backcountry were beyond the pale of, of civilization almost. They weren't old money. They weren't the, the low country aristocracy that had been accumulating wealth and prestige for all these years. They were, some of them lawless, some of them bandits, some of them um, had to be regulated from time to time. But uh, South Carolina College was this hush puppy that was thrown to them almost in a defeatist sort of way. By the time that the college is chartered in 1801, the low country can see the writing on the wall. They know that the reapportionment is gonna happen at some point where a lot of their power is gonna be spread across, across the, um, the upcountry. And this is their way to to give the upcountry one of the things they've been asking for for a long time, which is greater access for education. It's, it's about 10 years before there's any sort of real public school system that's even attempted in South Carolina. Um, but really, I, I think it's a lot about trying to make sure that the upcountry folks are civilized enough that if we're gonna lose power to these people, at least let's make sure that they're literate when they, when they make laws for us. Now, 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 you, now you, <laughs> you're laughing, but Brent is just about quoting verbatim from several members of the General <laughs> Assembly that if they're gonna end up voting and being in the General Assembly, they're gonna to have to be educated, okay? We just can't have these country yahoos coming into the General Assembly. <laughs> and they were not really clodhoppers in the 19th century tradition because South Carolina had property qualifications for office holding. So even those backcountry men usually were slave owners. In fact, by 1800, I believe every legislator from the backcountry owned at least one slave because you had a dollar qualification for holding office. Yeah, don't look at this state <clears throat> maintained property qualifications for office holding until 1860. It started with the House member, then a Senate member a little bit more, and then it went way up to the governor. And it wasn't just worth so much, it had to be worth so much free of debt. There was a lot of debt. And there was a lot <laughs> there of was debt. There was a lot of debt left over. In the fact, revolution. a lot of those low country legislators didn't meet the debt requirement <laughs> had they really been, it really been. Uh, they had the right names though. Uh, of course they had the right <laughs> names. <laughs> this is South Carolina. So we, we laugh about that because we think about the low country and the up country, but this, these were phrases that were used and bandied about. And believe me, the upcountry folks were just as snarky as the kids would say today about <laughs> the people from the low country. They didn't like the aristocracy. They did not like the aristocracy. In fact, earlier, I think we, was it John Belton O'Neill or Edenus Burke who made comments about the Rutledges and said, if you go back two generations, remember you were just an immigrant. <laughs> okay. There was a, um, the Republicanism of Jeffersonian Republican, they were much stronger in the backcountry. <clears throat> and there was a, a conscious attempt to, to not appear aristocratic. There was, with, with the fact that there were so many um, non-slaveholders in the backcountry. I mean, a lot of people owned slaves, but there were a lot of people that were just farmers with no slaves. There was an attempt, at least by people who were upwardly mobile politicians, to not appear too haughty. So people were conscious of what they wore and made sure they weren't too ostentatious. They didn't want to look like those, those Charleston gentry. Yeah. This is a topic that people have a hard time. They, they don't want to talk about class distinctions, mm -hmm. but people were very conscious of class in 18th and 19th century South Carolina. And these were Jeffersonian Republicans. And they remained so well into the 20th century. If you read Red Hills and Cotton, which is one of my favorite books, 
They talk about the industrial collapse, the collapse of capitalism and, and the Great Depression as almost God's vengeance. The farmers now are going to triumph again because industries and wealth is bad. And this is stuff coming out of, out of South Carolina for 100 years. Mm-hmm. So you want to take it up to the uh, Compromise of 1808, and then we can go forward a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I can do that. There was this malapportionment of representation. And essentially, you had, if you were from the backcountry looking to the low country, you realized that the odds were stacked against you, and there was no easy way around it. Because the people that would have been responsible for spreading more political representation up in your section were the ones who were already sitting in office. And it would have essentially been low country dominated legislature giving away their own power. And there was just very little motivation for them to want to do that. And what it all boiled down to was the low country was so heavily invested in slavery and the products of slave labor and the wealth and the riches that came with that that they were very hesitant to, to give power to the upcountry because, in fact, they did have a white majority. They had significantly fewer slaves, and they didn't trust them on the slavery issue. For, for a lot of different reasons, there's um, flare-ups from time to time, the French Revolution. The response of the upcountry Republicans, little r Republicans, but also big r Jeffersonian Republicans, who in a lot of ways, championed the ideas of the French Revolution about liberty and equality and fraternity. And to the low country folks, that sounded a lot like ideas that if they made it into the wrong hands or if the wrong people heard them, that is slaves. Just like Haiti. Just like Haiti, you might end up with the, the same sort of slave rebellion that turns into a revolution in South Carolina. So that, that was, they couldn't be trusted. And until they could be trusted to make sure that in every instance they protected slavery first and foremost, they were not going to share that power. And when Brent mentioned the French Revolution, I could see some people puzzled. Well, how did the word of the French, you know, there was no CNN, there was no Mm 24-7 news cycle. How did these backcountry folk know about the French Revolution? First of all, there were newspapers. Columbia in the early 19th century had had newspapers. But news traveled the old-fashioned way, by word of mouth. And uh, there were backcountry men who were actually wearing the tricolor cockades, literally showing their colors in terms mm-hmm. of favoring the French Revolution. The backcountry is the area that was the strongest against the adoption of the United States Constitution in South Carolina, overwhelmingly opposed to the ratification of the Constitution. Backcountry. They, they always said, we, we already have one distant and un, non-responsive government. We don't need another one. <laughs> and that's essentially what they were handed with the, with the federal constitution in 1787. Yeah. I mean, did, did y'all catch what he was saying is there is that <laughs> there was already an unresponsive government in Charleston. They didn't need one a thousand miles away. And of course, the irony would be 50 years later, or actually 30 years later, when you mm-hmm. get to nullification, the support for Andrew Jackson and the federal government comes from the back country, the opposition comes from the low country. Mm-hmm. So you got to be careful what you ask for. The low country <laughs> asked for it. They got it. They were federalists. Uh, people forget that we had presidential candidates from South Carolina. The Rutledges, and the, right, sorry, the Pinckneys, not the mm-hmm. Rutledges. Rutledge was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. But he never was confirmed. He was, he was already an associate justice, and he was appointed a chief justice. The Senate refused to confirm him because he had opposed his party on the Jay Treaty, which he thought gave away too much of the country's liberty. It did. So there again, you get this question of liberty and freedom, mm-hmm. but the backcountry is the champion, and eventually some low country folks like Charles Pinckney, mm-hmm. founding father, and others turn around, and by 1808, as Brent says, they've decided they've got to do something about it. The, the backcountry is getting so restless. There's even talk of not secession. They didn't use that term now, but there's, there are rumblings, and they're talking about, well, we did it in the regulator movement. We won the revolution. Threats of maybe just going down to Charleston and beating up on some folks. <laughs> I mean, I'm not being facetious. There was, there was a real mm-hmm. concern about civil disorder. 
And if you remember that the low country is two-thirds African-American and slave population, they can't afford this order. So we come up with what they call the Compromise of 1808. John C. Calhoun had a big hand in that. He did. Young John C. Calhoun. He actually, the year, two years before, had sponsored the bill that gave South Carolina as one of the first states in the Union for universal white male suffrage. One of the few states that had... The first. The first state the first. to have universal white male suffrage. You might not get elected to office, but you could still... You could still vote. You could still vote. Um, and uh, it was the, the 1808 compromise was was a, a new formula. It was still a formula. It wasn't, it wasn't based on white population. There was still the consideration of taxable wealth, but I think the, the formula was now there would be one member of the, of the, um, the House for every 162nd of taxable wealth and one for every 162nd of white population. And the, the result was still that the, the low country ended up um, essentially having control over the upper house or the Senate because each um, election district got one senator except for Charleston, you still got two, right? Yeah, because you had two parishes, St. Charles and St. Michael, so you got... Um, and the upcountry essentially took control over the lower house because they had a much, much greater population and their taxable wealth had been steadily increasing. Um, not yet to the point that the low country was, but still they were, they were getting pretty rich. Mm -hmm. And what essentially happened was that the... The low country, who was still firmly committed to slavery, didn't necessarily have to give up all of their power because what they had always wanted was, was a partner in the upcountry that would protect slavery along with them or be guaranteed to protect slavery, and now they had one. The upcountry was essentially now two sections, sort of the, the middle country and then the real upcountry. And the middle country was, was just as heavily slave now almost as the low country. So there would always be an ally and always be a really thick black belt that would vote together. So the, the low country essentially gave away its power, but won because their way of life became the way of life for most of the state. Yeah. It was an interesting compromise, as Brent said. We've got 124 House members. 62 will be apportioned according to population, voting population, not population, voting population. And 62 or half will be apportioned according to the taxable wealth of the district. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what happens as slavery moves inland, by 1860, remember, all but 10 districts in the state are black majority. And so it's no longer a question of low country and up country. It's a question of the expansion of the black belt, which is a term that they used mm -hmm. on that. But when they made this compromise, the low country pointed out that in terms of tax receipts, they paid about 77% of the tax rate produced that in taxable wealth. But they had to admit that you could reverse that in terms of population because the upcountry white population had increased to almost three-fourths of the white population. So as Brent said, it, it worked out. But one of the reasons that it worked out is this became a political third rail in South Carolina. This was a compromise. And in that 1808 Act, it said every 10 years the, there will be a census and the General Assembly will be reapportioned, period. There were several people down between 1808 and 1860 who talked about meddling with that, cost them their political careers because this became the way that what would by 1820 be the white minority became one people. Mm -hmm. South Carolina College, for the good order and harmony of the state. That's in our charter, ladies and gentlemen. The South Carolina College was created to promote the good order and harmony of the state of South Carolina by bringing together the sons of the upcountry and the sons of the low country. Mm -hmm. And it was quite a good college, Brent. I, I agree. Still is. <laughs> I agree as well. <laughs> but in the South, you referred to two, two institutions of higher education, the university, which meant Mr. Jefferson's university, and the college, which meant the South Carolina College. Mm -hmm. And one of the things the General Assembly did to increase the power of the South Carolina College was not to permit charters for any denominational schools, at least not at first. Um, 
the ARPs decided in, I think, 1837 that they were going to found Erskine, but it was not legally chartered until, until later. Because the idea was that you wanted all the educated young men to come to one place, one university. The Citadel doesn't get founded until later, but, but that initial purpose was to create the, the college and its foes, and the university had enemies, political and social enemies. That first president, what does he really stand for? You know, But the big complaint was that the General Assembly had become an alumni association for the South Carolina College. Almost to a man. Almost to, <laughs> yes. So the aim of the founders, which included folks from Georgetown County, look at the older buildings on campus, Drayton, Desasso. Those were named for the men from the low country who, Pinckney, Rutledge, who wanted the South Carolina College to, to have a purpose. And uh, on the 50th anniversary of its founding, that the News and Courier, excuse me, just the Courier in those days, had a big editorial and said, look at what's happened over the last 50 years. Hmm. Not every governor, but almost every governor. And the same with the judiciary, the General Assembly. So it worked. It did, exactly what they wanted it to do. It was to, to train up the next generation. It was to make sure they were instructed in the, in the right type of instruction. Um, it was to, to form bonds and links between the different parts of the state. That was, that was a big thing, too. It wasn't just a hush puppy to the, to the upcountry to keep them quiet about reapportionment. It was actually meant to bring the best and the brightest from the upcountry, bring out the best and the brightest from the lowcountry, and have them form these bonds that would, that would actually then go even further in uniting the two sections. The big affair of the of the year the college graduated in december in those days by the way the semester ended in december the general assembly met for just two weeks in the in december <laughs> at the same time as brent said bring these young men together and if you were a poor lad from the upcountry that didn't make any difference you could still come to the college and there was more than likely was an alumnus who might help you out the big occasion was the debate between the literary societies, and that is where the politicians and the General Assembly looked for who is a bright young man that we want to bring along. That's where James Henry Hammond got his start. Some of them became editors, some of them became clerks and then, and then politicians. It really was a recruiting ground for future political leadership of the state trying out right there. And if you read the debates, uh, and they weren't just namby-pamby debates, certainly by the 1830s, they were debating very weighty issues, very politically weighted issues. And you talk about they were taught correctly. Thomas Cooper has often been called the godfather of nullification mm -hmm. and the idea of secession. At least that's what uh, the late Dan Hollis referred to him hmm. as. You know, these, these debating societies were, um, you, you could learn so much in one of these. I actually, when I teach the Old South, I have my students form debate societies and we have a debate every week. You had, to, you had to learn both sides of an issue. You didn't just argue the way that you felt about a particular political issue. You, you would be assigned an issue and you had to argue either for or against it, no matter what your personal beliefs were. And then sometimes the tables would be turned and you would argue both sides. So you would have to, learn to anticipate your opponent's argument. You would have to know what your strengths were. You'd have to also identify your weaknesses so you could always parry back and forth when they came at you. So learning on the go, that sort of active learning was, was a really thorough way of, of inculcating the values of a real education. I mean, a thorough education in the young people that went to USC. Carolina College, um, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the real issues that was debated, not political, but curriculum, in the 1840s and 1850s is what is the value of a traditional education? This was a very traditional classical education. You had to be able to read and write Latin in order to get into the university. Mm -hmm. Brent will tell you that I used to give out the requirements for admission to the South Carolina College <laughs> and ask members of the class, did they think they could be accepted mm -hmm. if those were the requirements? They were, it's amazing. I mean, it was not a, 
Is that one of these things you were just assumed that you were going to go to college and study for a few years and get your degree? I mean, you went and you became a, a finished orator by the time you got out. You became somebody who was deeply steeped in, in the politics of the day, in ancient politics. You had to understand where things had come from and where things were going. Yes, and you were expected, if you gave an oration, that you had mm -hmm. to quote from Cicero or Shakespeare or mm -hmm. everybody quoted from, from Scripture, but it was more important to, talk, to throw in, well, Cicero said X, Y, and Z, or mm. the argument the Athenians had for democracy. Mm. And the people who were listening to the debates, whether they went to college or not, they got it. They did not feel like they were being talked down to. Political debates were entertainment. People got excited for listening to two or three hours of political debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know, it's hard <laughs> to believe. <laughs> but guess what? They had real debates. They did. And the audience responded. Sometimes the responses got a little bit, you know, rotten egg, tomato. Um, <laughs> and in the early 19th century, cow pies, mm. we know. Uh, <laughs> so I see a picnic basket right there. <laughs> so what impact do you think this classical education of the South Carolina College had on South Carolina politics from 1820 to 1860? Hmm. Well, it, it definitely educated most of, or a lot of the, the leading political minds. And whether it was the education or not, most people got into politics thinking one way. Because there was, there was really only one path of South Carolina politics, and that was to follow, follow where John C. Calhoun led you, pretty much. Um, now, Calhoun didn't go to South Carolina College. No. He went to Yale. And until recently, had a building named after him. But um, you, you, you learned how, how the world worked. And the way that South Carolina politics developed, um, it was sort of isolated from the rest of the country. As, as Jacksonian democratic politics became the norm outside of South Carolina, there was just the one way of South Carolina. There was the Calhoun party against everybody else. And there was the idea that as long as we're in it for us, as long as we're unified, we can actually fight for ourselves a lot better than if we were part of a national system. Hmm. Yes, they were Jacksonian until Jackson and Calhoun parted ways, <laughs> which to me is a real backcountry South Carolina story. <laughs> First of all, ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Jackson was born in South Carolina. And the reason I say that is Andrew Jackson said he was born in South Carolina. And anybody stupid enough to disagree with Andrew Jackson might, if you, if you questioned him, he might have shot you dead. At least challenge you to a duel. Oh, yes. He yeah. certainly would have challenged you to a duel. <laughs> Calhoun never fought a duel. Hmm. He might have had a lot of political things to say, but he was obviously very careful about what he said about an individual. Because you remember under the code duello that was practiced in South Carolina, even though it was illegal, not really, it was, but it was frowned upon. It wasn't outlawed actually until after the Civil War. But it can happen over something as silly as it did at the South Carolina College over a plate of fish. So this world that uh, we talked about is of John C. Calhoun, Jacksonian democracy, we haven't gotten to Jackson and Calhoun's split. Do you want to pick that up? I can. Okay. Jackson and Calhoun seem like they would have been great pals. <laughs> um, like you said, a great upcountry South Carolina story of, of boys growing up, and Jackson more than Calhoun, but both came from, from modest means. They first came, I guess, came to a head in 1824 with the presidential election. This was a time period when there really was only one political party, there wasn't a lot of, of um, infighting between different political ideologies, but the problem with that is you had so many candidates that nobody really knew who to vote for, and in 1824 there were five Republican candidates, one of which was John C. Calhoun, one of which was Andrew Jackson. Calhoun eventually withdrew because, we can get to, to Calhoun's politics later, but he, he didn't have the support of South Carolina for a lot of reasons um, for the presidency, so he withdrew his name and um, ran for the vice presidency unopposed. Jackson ends up winning more popular votes than anybody else in 1824, but losing the presidential election to John Quincy Adams. Um, but the day after the election of 1824, Andrew Jackson becomes a candidate for president in 1828, and he wins in a landslide victory. 
Um, and Calhoun is still the vice president. So Calhoun is actually Andrew Jackson's vice president. And that's when politically they, they, they part ways. Um, personally too, there was, there was a, the controversy with Peggy Eaton. Mm -hmm. Florella Calhoun, John C. Calhoun's wife, um, refused to, to associate with the, uh, the wife of another one of the cabinet members in Jackson's cabinet. Well, there, there is a backstory. There is, well, okay. it's kind of salacious. Yeah. Florade Bono Calhoun from the Low Country. Peggy Eaton was a wash. She was more or less a native of Washington D.C. Had something of a shady lady background, and she was courted and then then married Senator Eaton from Tennessee, who was one of Jackson's buddies, and also then became a member of the cabinet. Jackson, of course, was a widower by now. Rachel had died. He often thought she really died from all the things that were said in the 1824 election. He <laughs> never forgave John Quincy Adams and all the people who opposed him. <laughs> so Mrs. Calhoun was sort of the official hostess in Washington. Well, 19th century custom was if you're the official hostess, you will begin your rounds and you will call on ladies that you deem that you will invite into your social circle. Well, she would not call on... Mrs. Eaton, and it actually was the subject of a called cabinet meeting mm -hmm. where John C. Calhoun was directed by the president to order his wife to call on Peggy Eaton. And Floride Bonneau Calhoun said, not on your life. She packed her bags, left Washington, and never returned. <laughs> and all that told Andrew Jackson was, that Calhoun didn't wear the pants in his family. <laughs> <laughs> but it wouldn't be the last time that Jackson got a no from Calhoun. No, <laughs> no, that was the first, but then it went from... It went from bad to worse. Um, Calhoun was responsible for, or partially responsible for pushing through a, a tariff in 1828. This was meant in, in some, some degree to actually get Jackson elected because it, <laughs> the, the idea of the tariff was that these, these congressmen allied with Calhoun would propose a tariff that was so high and so ridiculous and so absurd that, of course, even New England would, would veto it and, and vote the tariff down. They didn't. <laughs> so it backfired, and it became known as the, the tariff of abominations, and it, it was forgotten in the, in the mix that, that Calhoun had actually been responsible for introducing the tariff in the first place. Um, but the tariff became a huge issue in South Carolina because... The tariff essentially taxed imports to protect northern manufacturing. And Calhoun said, this is, this is clearly unfair. This is unconstitutional. In fact, this is uh, discriminatory against the South because you're protecting the North, protecting northern industry, and there is no protection for the South because we produce raw materials. We don't manufacture anything. But what we do buy, we have to import, so we have to pay, I think the tax was 40 or 50% on some products, have to pay 40 or 50% more because we want to protect northern industry. And this became a big issue, a huge politi political issue between um, Jackson and Calhoun. And Calhoun believed that if he could get Jackson elected, which Jackson was elected, that Jackson could be led down the path of um, going along with the idea of nullification. And this was not Calhoun's original idea, but he articulated it best of anybody else. And Calhoun in 1828 wrote an anonymous, anonymous pamphlet that laid out the idea of nullification and that if there was a if there was a federal law federal law that was passed that was clearly unfair to a particular section or in the ideas uh, or in the minds of a state unconstitutional then that state could actually nullify the law declare it null and void um, if it wanted to do that and Calhoun's idea was that a state could declare it null and void the law would then go before the, each individual states to take an up or down vote on it. And if three-fourths of a state agreed that it was, in fact, constitutional, then it would go through. But if it didn't have enough votes, then the law would be declared unconstitutional. Jackson didn't go along with it. Jackson wanted to enforce this federal law. And it became a showdown between Jackson and Calhoun, between the federal government and South Carolina over nullification. And it was a, it was a showdown of, of huge proportions. Calhoun actually resigned the vice presidency. Um, immediately was elected to the Senate to represent South Carolina, where he ran point on the, the anti-Jackson, anti-government um, anti side of things. Now, Jackson, I'm telling you, Calhoun resigns. Mm -hmm. 
this is why I don't write fiction. This is drama of the <laughs> highest order. We don't need fiction. No, no. There is a Jeffersonian Day dinner in Washington, and the tradition is that the president would make the first toast and the vice president would make the responding toast. And so Jackson stands up to the union and Calhoun responds and the people who watch it said he clutched his wine glass so hard he almost broke the stem. And his response was, the union next to our liberty most dear. He tossed the bomb. J Jackson had tossed it to him. He tossed it right back. Very shortly thereafter, he did resign. But amazingly, there was a position for him because the General Assembly elected the Senate. One of our senators resigned so that John C. Calhoun could have his seat <laughs> in the U.S. Senate. And as American politics developed after this, you have the Jacksonian Democrats that eventually become just the Democrats, and you have the Whig Party arising, which is an opposition. You don't have truly any of those in South Carolina, as Brent talks about. In every other state where there was a large planter elite, they were Whigs. The Mississippi Delta, Louisiana, Mobile, Georgia, mm -hmm. Savannah, in Virginia, they became Whigs. The big planter class became Whigs, but not in South Carolina. The Whigs were too, they were um, proponents of too big of a government, too active of a government. And they would have sponsored um, public works, uh, the digging of canals, the building of roads, and that would have been way too much action on the, form, on the hand of the government. Calhoun was all about small government, which would make you think that he would have been a Jacksonian Democrat, but for his feud with Andrew Jackson. Yeah. Um, it just, he just didn't, didn't fit in with that, and South Carolina went along with him. There was really very, after nullification, there was nowhere that Calhoun could have gone that South Carolinians wouldn't have followed. They might have been a little bit hesitant, but they got there. But he could change his position, because he, Calhoun <laughs> yeah. always wanted to be president. Mm. In fact, at one point in running for president, he kind of got soft on this internal improvements, as they call mm -hmm. them. Uh, you could do things for the coast, you know, coastal defenses and what have you. And in order to appeal to the Midwest, he declared the Mississippi River to be an inland sea. <laughs> and when some true believer said, we can't do that, their political career was over. John C. Calhoun ruled South, and Lacey Ford's talked about this several times in his wonderful book, Origins of Upcountry Radicalism. You could not oppose John C. Calhoun and expect to have a political life in South Carolina. It only really happened once that anybody was successful, and that was when, because of his sort of flip-flopping politically when he wanted to be president in 1824. But he, Calhoun um, came of age nationally right after the War of 1812. Um, and he came out of that learning lessons from the war, and he was a nationalist. He, he essentially was a fan of internal improvements and the tariff. The tariff and, and the bank. And, 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 and the, the credit. Bank of the United and States. the bank. The three big Federalists, you know, Alexander Hamilton would have been so proud. No, seriously. Oh, John C. Calhoun, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he was a, right alongside with the young Henry Clay. They were, they were these nationalists. They came out of the war, and the problem was, as Calhoun was was continuing as a nationalist, South Carolina was, was backing away from that, that position. And South Carolina was becoming much more states' rights, local government oriented. And that came in conflict with each other when Calhoun actually wanted to run for the presidency in 1824. And that's why he didn't have the full support of his state, because he didn't represent what South Carolina had become. But he never, he ne he never made any, any attempt to be totally consistent with himself. And um, when it came down to it, he, he flip-flopped on that. He went from being an ardent nationalist to being the foremost states' rights proponent in, in America. And it was because South Carolina led him there, but everybody else was keeping up with him from that point. And he did, he did go back and forth. There was actually um, there was a tariff that he supported in, in the 1840s on um, rice. Yes, To absolutely. protect the, ri the rice industry. And um, you know, Calhoun in support of a tariff would have just been unheard of in, in, the, in the 20s. But. but see, what's interesting, as this really comes full circle with, mm. we started our conversations off with Peter Kerklanis and the economy. Mm. Why do you think South Carolina went from being nationalist to 
states' right is because the first cotton boom collapsed and South Carolina's economy collapsed mm -hmm. with it. Not only did it, did it collapse here, but the competition from Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Georgia, everybody talks about it's the tariff that's hurting our cotton exports. It didn't really, but that was the... That was the boogeyman. That was, that was the scapegoat. And South Carolina never recovered from that, the end of that first cotton boom. Yeah. Not until the 1850s. Not until the 1850s, when everybody was sort of raised up. But South, South Carolina, before, um, before 1820, they produced more cotton than any other state in the Union. And um, by the time you get to the Civil War, they still produced a lot. They produced a lot more than they had, but it was no better than, what, sixth or seventh of all the southern states? I think depending, either six mm -hmm. or seven in 1860s. So, mm -hmm. so there, was, there was that sense that we're, we've lost something. We're, we're falling far from what we used to be. And um, because of that, the, the margin for disagreement with, with Calhoun's hegemony was just, it wasn't there. You, you towed the line. You know, it was, it was interesting. A man who, I'm talking about Calhoun now, who really was truly a son of the upcountry, mm -hmm. a Scots-Irish. He, he never liked Charleston. In fact, when there was a yellow fever epidemic uh, before the War of 1812, he said, his only concern was that the entire population of the city had not been wiped out. <laughs> but as the late Bill Foran, who taught history, Southern history at this university many years ago said, he said that, but guess where he wanted to be sprinkled? In Charleston. So this is why Brent and Lacey and Mark Smith and I, when we, people keep saying, Take all these wonderful examples, you know, write fiction. Folks, we don't have to. And when it's not because things might be funny, but it's because it's so interesting. And as Larry Watson said, and several of you talked about, things get very complicated, don't they? <laughs> they do. And nothing was ever, nothing in history is ever set in stone. There's never anything that's inevitable. One of the things that frustrates me the most is when a student thinks that everything in American history is leading up to the Civil War. And in hindsight, you know, it might look like that, but to the people who lived it, they didn't have any clue. Um, Civil War wasn't a, you know, at what point was it a sure thing? It's, it's hard to even say that, but the history is, is the, the actions of millions of people accumulating together. It's the, it's the actions that are taken, the actions that aren't taken, it's the different paths, it's the different decisions. All of that comes together, and one thing going a different way, you might end up with a totally different history. So always keeping that in the back of your mind is, is useful to, to not really think of history as this inevitable march of, of progress well, or it, towards it's, something. It's because we always refer to the antebellum period. That's a name that people after the Civil War <laughs> gave to the period before the Civil War. They would have wondered, what war are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> We're before which war? Oh my goodness. Yeah. But if, if you read the letters, the speeches, the newspaper editorials in 1860, a lot of them aren't even thinking about there's going to be a war. Mm -hmm. So as, as Brent says, all too often people think there's an inexorable, this is going to happen. Playing what ifs is fun. We don't do it as historians, but it's always, you know, I've got some folks in this audience who have always said, well, what if this had happened or that had happened? Well, it didn't. There are certain, there are certain things that, di that did happen, but they were not preordained. Okay? Do you think Calhoun saw the war coming? No. I don't. I really don't. In fact, people like Wilsey in his biography of, of Calhoun actually would make the claim that he didn't think that Calhoun was really even serious about secession, that his whole purpose was to basically keep South Carolina and the Union, but be able to have its own way. Which, by the way, was a game that South Carolina had been playing since the days of the Revolution. In the Continental Congress, when they were going to close down the exports, South Carolina said, you're going to have to exempt rice, otherwise we will not participate. Okay? They got to keep exporting their cash crop. Virginia didn't get tobacco, but rice, which would have included South Carolina and the low country of Georgia, Still got to, but it was South Carolina who said, either do it or we're not going to play ball. Same with the Constitutional <laughs> Convention, the three-fifths compromise, mm -hmm. the compromise on slavery. So they bluffed I, well. And so this is <laughs> this, this is where people mm -hmm. like Wilsey and others saw Calhoun, that he was convinced that he probably could make it happen. Now, what is interesting, Calhoun dies in 1850, but within a span of a very few years. 
that whole generation of leaders that had grown up right after the revolution, Calhoun, Jackson, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, they're gone. The people who replaced them have really become modern politicians. Not that Calhoun and the others weren't politicians, mm -hmm. but they were in their own way statesmen. Mm -hmm. And earlier historians call those politicians in the 1850s the blundering generation. <laughs> if you look at older schools, of, uh, they could have done something to keep the war from happening. You know, it's, it's a discredited school, but it makes an interesting, you know, to look at all those folks and call them blunderers. They did I, blunder. <laughs> Calhoun was a little naive, I think. Well, he, he, so the idea of nullification, when Calhoun proposed nullification, he didn't do it with the, the end results, hoping, hoping it would, would break South Carolina out of the Union. He actually hoped that what would happen is that laws that he thought were unconstitutional would just not apply to South Carolina, and they, then the Union could go forward. And he actually thought the idea, the concept of nullification would strengthen the Union because um, his, his idea, he called it the, the idea of concurrent majorities, that if a if a majority actually had the ability to run roughshod over a minority, that's not a real Republican government. You have to look out for the interests and the rights of the minority. So nullification was a way for government to, to proceed on a compromise basis. Nobody was going to propose something that was so egregious because the likelihood of it being nullified might be high. So you would always think about, well, how is this going to affect everybody before you propose any sort of legislation? The nuclear option was secession, but he hoped that would never happen, and he hoped that nullification would actually strengthen the Union. And I don't know. Ultimately, I think that he was sort of naive in thinking that he might be able to, to moderate the hotheads in South Carolina. But. Well, but this is where we come back to Jackson. Calhoun and other South Carolina leaders really, they had, we had a nullification convention, <laughs> nullified the tariff of 1828. This is a great story, too. Um, <laughs> Or a great series of events. Yeah, nullified the tariff mm -hmm. and declared it null and void. But the nullification convention was smart enough to say it's only going to go into effect later. Mm -hmm. They didn't think Jackson was going to do anything about it. He just issued a blistering statement and publicly threatened to personally lead the United States Army into South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Now, his buddies in Tennessee, in the over-the-mountain boy tradition, said, well, Andy, you don't need to do that. We're just going to get to the top of the mountain, and we're going to do what our forebears did to Ferguson at King's Mountain, and that is we're going to urinate and float the whole nullifying crowd into the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so Jackson, yeah, Jackson did what Calhoun didn't think he was going to do, or maybe he did, but it's, so South Carolina nullifies, Jackson talks big and threatens, Henry Clay works out a compromise, so the, the tariff is actually lowered to a level that's more acceptable, South Carolina goes along with a new tariff, then Jackson, the federal government issues what they call the force bill, which says we, we have the ability to force you to, to abide by federal regulations. <laughs> and then South Carolina nullifies the force bill. <laughs> but, but the force bill was meant to, to show that nullification had no currency, and yet that's what South Carolina uses to nullify that bill itself. So it's, that's a fun little... Well, but, but see, your point earlier, South Carolina got its way. It got the tariff lowered. They did. Okay. I mean, so... It was one of those things I feel like Calhoun was constantly pushing the envelope of what was possible, always assuming that he might take, have to take a step back. But by pushing the envelope as far as he could, where he ended up was a whole lot farther than where he would have started. It worked until 1850. Mm -hmm. And the Compromise of 1850, which is way beyond the scope of what we've been talking about, he opposed that compromise, where South Carolina was the only southern state that opposed the Compromise of 1850. That was Calhoun's last speech in the Senate. He actually didn't deliver it because he was dying. It was read for him. While he stood beside the guy that read it. Yeah. <laughs> Looking stern as Calhoun did. Yeah, but. and this, this is where he talks about the strands that bind us together are snapping one by one. You've already had the religious denominations begin to separate into northern branches and southern branches, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, Methodists. And he talks about the amity between the regions is fraying and 
maybe he does see war at this point, mm -hmm. but he opposed the compromise. It passed overwhelmingly despite his speech mm -hmm. and his and the two South Carolina senators uh, opposing it. Um, the rest of the South said okay. All right, folks. Well, I want to thank you again for coming out to the series, and next year we're going to talk about making the world safe for democracy. World <laughs> War I. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I very much enjoyed this conversation with Brent Morris. He's another one of my students. This is an undergraduate in South Carolina history, but I've kept up with this young man and his career, and he is one of the handful of full-time faculty at any institution in our state who still teaches South Carolina history. This was a conversation that ranged far and wide and, as you could tell, of great interest to those in attendance. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.